You're listening to the Insights at Work podcast, where we look at what's happening in the HR and business world, take your questions, and study the research to help HR experts move forward. It's prepared by HR experts for HR experts. Today, Jeff speaks with one of Canada's top experts in reskilling and upskilling. They'll chat about future-proofing your workforce, holding delicate conversations, the benefits of doing only 2% more, and of course, banana bread recipes. I love banana bread. Are you ready? Well, let's dive in. Welcome to the Insights at Work podcast. Today, I'm joined by an incredible speaker, someone I've respected for quite some time. Why, it seems like just 18 months ago, we were all gathering together in large numbers, drinking coffee and snacking on banana bread, and listening to our guests' key insights into how HR professionals could future-proof our workforce. And I'd say that given what's happened as of late, I hope we were all listening very carefully and took just some of her advice. Welcome to the Insights at Work podcast from LHH Knightsbridge, keynote speaker and HR prophet, Kim Spurgeon. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Well, Kim, as we often do on the Insights at Work podcast, let's get right into things. Kim, before heading into the pandemic, if the HR professional had a strong program around career reskilling, upskilling, and transition, well, they'd have been in a very good position to weather that perfect HR storm we saw when the pandemic hit. I think that over the past five years, we've seen a shift in what the worker wants out of their career, and I think the pandemic just helped to speed things along. Workers are now more than ever carefully weighing what experience and new skills a prospective or current employer has to offer them. So Kim, let's start with hearing your thoughts on how careers have changed and how the pandemic has influenced our workplace. Thanks, Jeff. And I think there's a number of factors at play. It's almost like a perfect storm. I would suggest we had a number of things happening pre-pandemic. So just look at it from a digital disruption was one of the first big things or the what we're calling the fourth industrial revolution. We've got AI technology happening. Never mind all the political and social unrest that happened. And we also have a huge new generation or demographic joining the workforce, which is the millennials. And what that really means is what they want out of work has changed. So pile that, that kind of the icing on the cake is really the pandemic. So this was all happening pre-pandemic. All the pandemic did, as you said, speed it up. So I think what's really happened in terms of what people want out of that work experience is, is getting away from that whole concept of a career ladder is what they really want is experiences. So what are you going to do to develop me? What are you going to do to give me experiences? And, and what can I anticipate that, that you're going to do for me and my career? So what people are really wanting is what is that employee value proposition if I join your firm? What are you going to give me in terms of my skill set? Well, Kim, let's talk about that skill set. Today, our access to information is pretty easy. Google's on any device we've got. And if I want that recipe for that delicious banana bread we used to enjoy at those HR conferences, 
I just need to ask my smart speaker. But there's still that challenge of how do I get from the recipe to the baking to the eating part of this culinary equation. Traditionally, our HR approach has been to buy talent or hire people with new skills to bake the banana bread rather than just reskilling existing workers. I think this is what we call future-proofing, but you're the expert and I just like to offer entertaining scenarios. So Kim, do you see a need to shift our HR approach away from being knowledge-based to skill-based? And is that future-proofing? My answer is a bit of a yes and no. I don't think uh, it's knowledge to skill-based. I think it's both. It's not either or, it's and to be honest. And I think what's really changed is the impact of what's going on in the workforce. So let's take a step back and say the workforce, the reason the whole concept of just fire and hire new happened is people are wanting those skills and I want them now. What's really happened is there's a skill shortage going on globally. The good news is the pandemic, you can get skills anywhere now, not just in your local city, but really what's happened is there's a skill shortage. So you're never going to be able to, to actually find the skills you're looking for. So a couple of things have happened. You're not going to find the skills, so you need to look internally. The benefit of looking internally is you have the capability of actually building on the institutional knowledge they already have for working there. And you have the ability to increase engagement and retention. If you say, look at my skills or my jobs are going out of date, but if you're going to take the time and energy to either upskill, reskill, or give me experiences to try something new, you're invested in me, I'm going to stick around. So what it's really done is future-proofing is really about looking at the skills of the people you have today and what can I do to get them ready to help our business be competitive in the future. And to be quite honest, uh, the future of work is actually already here for white collar. I think it just got consolidated with the pandemic. Well, Kim, in addition to reskilling, LHH Knightsbridge has a recruiting arm, but it sounds like you're suggesting HR professionals first look inward before looking outward? Well, my first suggestion is do your own workforce. Look internally and uh, get away away from this higher fire concept of spitting out new, bringing in, or spitting out current and and getting new. Uh, As I said, because of workforce, there's going to be some shortages there. But start with your own workforce. Figure out what those talents, do a talent assessment, essentially. Find out what your people have, where the gaps are, and where you need to invest in developing your people. Uh, you'll get a lot for, farther in terms of contribution to the business if you actually get invested in your own uh, current uh, workforce. Kim, a lot of companies have had to scale back over the last 18 months. We've seen the story play out over and over again. Company X decides to restructure with the possibility of hundreds of jobs to be shed, but that's not always the case and not when companies consolidate. Hiring and firing workers destroys engagement and morale, and it inflicts fatal wounds to the employer's brand. It's expensive, it's wasteful, and it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get the new skills that your workforce needs. But we still see this endless cycle of firing and hiring, even with successful companies. There's got to be a better way, even on a small scale, to keep great staff with great attitudes and great work ethics contributing to the organization. I do think there's a better way if you look at how we can get the HR community working better from the talent acquisition team to the talent development or the learning and development team with employee relations that are doing the firing and saying, 
what are the skills we need for the future? Where are the gaps? And where can we look internal to fill those roles before we go external? So it's kind of that HR ecosystem that needs to work together to say, how do we look internally to find those resources? And you just mentioned all the benefits of looking internally versus externally. And I think part of that is the mindset around talent is really evaluating the transferable skills of your current workforce is going to be critical as people move forward because they're not going to have an opportunity to find them externally. Well, Kim, in my experience, I've seen even more benefits than that. There's increased productivity. There's increased loyalty and increased long-term retention. It's not just an investment in the skills of the workforce, but it's strengthening the HR team's talent pipeline. And and there and I think that's what people underestimate is is the actual benefits are multiple within the organization. So, and I'll just use the example if you think about it in the context of every employee is uh, productivity is here and you invest in them and they even give you 2% more. So if you say you have 5,000 employees and 50% of them give you 2% more, what is that contribution to your business if they take that 2% more effort into their job? So that engagement, as I truly believe, uh, if people are passionate in what they that what they're doing and, and feeling respected and valued in the work they do, they're going to give you way more than, than you anticipate and you're going to get way more out of them. Well, absolutely. I think everybody can up their game. Now, Kim, not everyone always buys into big transformational change and that support usually needs to start at the executive level. But when you're the executive at the top of an organization, well, it's unlikely that someone else is going to tell you that you need to up your game. So how does the HR professional help direct their leaders along this path of reskilling and widespread change? And what are those barriers that they need to be aware of? Okay, I think there's a couple of questions in there, but let's start with the first piece of that question around getting the, the senior leadership team or the senior executives on board. And, and to be honest, any change in organization, you need to have sponsorship at the top of the house to actually be successful. So that that is critical. And I think if you're giving feedback to the senior people or the CEO at the top of the house, it's got to be very delicate. But they set the stage and the tone in the organization. So one of the first things that you want is that culture. What is the culture that supports uh, uh, driving change and upskilling and reskilling? If we don't see it being demonstrated at the top of the house, we're not going to buy into it either. So I think at the top of the house, I think the biggest area that we've seen in our research, we've done a number of CHRO roundtables. And what we're hearing is the top of the house often don't lack the digital literacy. They still want that administrative assistant to type for them, dictaphone for them, book their meetings, figure out how to use their systems, which is so out of date. And so I don't think those skills reflect what's happening in the uh, digital literacy because there's tons of courses around that. And I think digital literacy actually is only one piece of the puzzle. The other part of the puzzle is they set the tone on culture. So if you think of, of um, upskilling and reskilling, you're really saying we want a culture of continuous learning. What does that look like? And how am I demonstrating continuous learning? We don't go to school once, university, college, even if you go for multiple degrees and then stop. It's what are we doing on an ongoing basis? It doesn't need to be a formal course, but what are we doing on an ongoing basis to actually build those skills? And I think the top of the house sets the stage for that. Kim, how important is the company's culture and how does that cultural impact the company's ability to future-proof its workforce? Think about future-proofing is what do we want people to do? We want people to be curious. We want them to try without being penalized for failure. We want them to learn those new skills. And the only way we do it is if our culture condones it, encourages it versus 
uh, prevents it. And so one of the big things um, that I'm also seeing in organizations is the concept of talent hoarding. Well, Johnny's a really good performer, so I'm not letting go of Johnny. And I went, but Johnny has the opportunity to get reskilled and move to another department and people are not wanting to let go. To me, if you look at the better good of the organization, you want people to be able to say, Johnny's a strong performer, but we think he'd be a strong performer in, in this other department as well. And we'd like to upskill him or reskill him to get him ready. So it's the concept of the talent of the organization versus hoarding for a department is, is definitely a culture uh, for some organizations they need to get rid of to really allow people that opportunity to move around in the organization and create what I would call career mobility in the organization. Talent hoarding, what a great term. Now, I'm sure you've had a lot of these conversations and I'd love to hear what you suggest that the HR professional says when they're talking to Johnny about reskilling. I mean, it's gotta be a pretty sensitive conversation. Great question, because this is probably one of the biggest gaps I see in the organization because they often feel it's HR's job when I don't think it's HR, it's the manager's job to develop their people. People aren't having career conversations with their bosses or their employees. They're not actually telling people what they want aspirationally or where they want to go or what motivates them or what would make them stay in the organization. And I say to every leader, have you ever asked your top performers, what would make you leave this organization and what would make you stay? Because everybody has different motivators. So I think one of the critical things people need to do is find out what do I want out of my job? What do I want out of my career? What's going to make, what makes me tick? And I think that's a big gap that organizations are not doing is, a lot of people think it's HR, HR's job versus the actual line manager's job to develop and, and engage their employees. Great questions. What would make you leave? What would make you stay? At ADP, in addition to the regular check-ins, our leaders hold stay interviews with everyone on their team. It helps identify what the employee would like to see over time in regards to career development, and it gives the leader the opportunity to listen to express their gratitude, and to help plan that employee's career path. I would think that these state interviews are an important first step in identifying reskilling and upskilling candidates. Kim, how often are you seeing this with your clients in the field? Not enough at all. So if you think about the success of driving engagement, it's kind of a, what I would call a, a joint accountability. The employee needs to own their career. The leader needs to enable it by having those conversations and giving them opportunity to develop. And the organization needs to own the infrastructure or programs or resources to make it all happen. To me, the best success is when all of those take accountability for their core pieces. But it's certainly not happening. And most people, like I said, I don't have time. I don't know what to say. I don't have the answers or it's HR's job really are the things that we see happen. So it significantly uh, changes the outcome of engagement in the organization. Some of the research we've actually done is seeing the increased productivity and the return on uh, the business results by actually having a conversation, even if it's a bad one, it's better to have a conversation than no conversation at all. As I always say, a bad conversation about careers is better than no conversation at all about asking. And then separating, this is a whole passion for me, separating performance conversations with career conversations are so important because all they're going to remember is what you told they did wrong in that performance review. They're not going to remember you said, so tell me what you want to do with your career. Those are those things that need to be separated. Kim, if you've ever listened to the Insights at Work podcast, you know that we love practical tips and lists. 
We love that after a podcast, our audience members can take what they've heard and start something new or apply this new learning in the workplace. Kim, what are those first steps that the HR professional can take to begin to future-proof their talent pipeline? Yeah, I think there's lots of tactical tips that people people can apply right away. And some of them, by the way, they're already doing and just pulling it all together is probably key. So the first thing I probably do is do a talent assessment. What is the talent I have? What do I need to, who do I need to develop? Where are the gaps? So I can start planning for the future. So really assessing your talent. I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers is people don't have a system in place to consolidate all the skills with all their employee population. They have all the employees in a some kind of uh, online system. They don't necessarily catalog or categorize their skill sets. So I think the first thing is catalog their skill sets. Then figure out who is aspirationally wants to, to go into a new role. And I think you need to assess who needs to be maybe upskilled or reskilled. Again, those are both very different pieces. And where do we need to take the workforce? But all of that needs to be aligned with your business strategy. So this is where it's so important that HR needs to be part of that business strategy conversation. If we are today at A and we want to get to F, what do we need to get there from a business perspective and how are our talent strategies aligned? So that's kind of the first step. And when we assess those talents to say who's going to help us get there to maintain competitiveness or leapfrog our competitors is really going to be critical. So those are some of the things that I think organizations need to do. Putting in career development programs, putting in leadership programs, adopting a coaching culture, all those things contribute to getting your workforce ready. Kim, I should probably ask this question a little earlier, but I might as well ask it now for our listeners who can benefit from a bit of clarification. What is the difference between reskilling and upskilling? So upskilling is really taking your skills to the next level within the organization. So it could be as simple as getting involved in a project that develops your skill. And I'll say in financial literacy, say you don't run a P&L and you're not involved in anything related to a financial job, but you're involved in a project where you need to manage a budget. So upskilling is essentially just building new skills on currently what you have um, and taking it to the next level to potentially have them transferable into another role in the organization. Reskill is moving from a completely new role. Today, I'm a customer service rep. Tomorrow, I'm going to be a software developer where you're actually putting them in, in some kind of intensive program. Um, to get them into a brand new job that's completely different. Obviously, upskilling is a more cost-effective. General Assembly is a sister company of ours, and they basically all they do is reskilling. And essentially, they worked with Walt Disney, and Walt Disney was getting rid of, I think there was probably 30 customer service rep roles. They didn't need them. They had technology to do a lot of that customer service support. So they said, what are we going to do with these individuals? They have tons of institutional knowledge. They love working for us. What are we going to do with them? At the same time, acknowledging most of them were women. So if you take rid of a whole percentage of your population that happened to be a specific gender, what is the impact on your gender diversity in the organization? So they did a pilot program and put them into being software developers. It was an intensive program that they do, I think, over a four-month period, put them through this program. And then they did once they and put them back into the business in the software development department. Of course, they did assessments to assess that they had the aspirational goals and the basic uh, capability to, to actually do this. And they put them back in the department and they basically assessed their skill level. And what they found six months in is they were equivalent to a three-year software developer. Why? 
because they had the institutional knowledge already to take with them moving forward. They weren't coming in as purely a new grad as a software developer. So they had all that institutional knowledge. I think sometimes people forget about that have the capability to help take them to the next level. So that's really looking at how do they transfer their great customer service experience to apply it to a brand new skill. So that would be an example of a reskilling. Great example, Kim. In this instance, it's the combination of that employee's corporate memory and the new training that allows them to be able to contribute more than any new hire could. It reminds me of that old HR fable, and we've got quite a few of them. The one where the CFO asks the head of HR, well, what if we train the employees and they leave? And the head of HR replies, what if we don't and they stay? Yeah, just think about that implication of uh, putting your head in the sand, right, is really what that statement means. And and sometimes you have to evaluate where you're going to put those costs. But if you think about it, if those 30 customer service reps were fired, what's those severance costs? What's the impact on morale? If you get rid of those people, how about you take that severance or a portion thereof and apply it to a reskill program? You're keeping the people, you're reducing your severance cost, and you're increasing morale because people are saying, look, we're investing in our colleagues. We're not just getting rid of them. So I think there's a longer term benefit if you actually look at the implications of uh, minimizing your impact on severance cost and morale. Kim, if we're looking at investing in reskilling, what are those first few steps we'd need to undertake to get the ball rolling? I guess I wouldn't limit it to three. There's there's so many of them. Um, I would say three best practices uh, to building a program is assessing talent. You've got to know what you have to be able to figure out who can go where and who has transferable capability. Figure out what are those skills you need. Figure out who do we want to invest in, because I think that's critical. Have a consolidated place to put all your skill sets. And what I mean by that, one of the biggest barriers that, I, that we see in organizations, they know they have talent. They know they have needs, but they don't have any ability to match them. So some kind of system where they're matching their skills of their current employee work base and their future needs is so critical. So I think those are some of the basic ones that people probably need to do. And think about what are those, like a bigger plan is succession planning. What are those critical roles that we need to plan for, whether they're an individual contributor or a leader? What do we need to plan for? A lot of times people focus always at the top of the house but there's so many critical roles throughout the organization. What are we doing to help them prepare for the future? So I think, you know, looking at it more broadly is that overall talent strategy, because there's so many intersecting points, whether you're looking at onboarding, mentoring, career development, talent development, succession planning, they all interconnect in terms of prep for the future, right? They all need to be having a dialogue with all of the stakeholders within HR to align with that talent, with that business strategy. So Kim, what I think I'm hearing is that we need to consider the workforce as renewable and identify the segments that can be upskilled or reskilled. Then we need to provide those segments with the career coaching so employees understand where they fit in the organization's future talent pool. Absolutely. And, and I think that's a bit of a tagline we've been using with customers to really get them to change the mindset. It, it is a mindset about uh, renewable versus replaceable, really, for us. And so instead of just firing and rehiring, it's thinking about in the renewable. So part of that culture shift is thinking about your workforce as a renewable part, right? As a growth mindset about your employees, not just your business. So it is about the renewable versus replaceable. Great advice, Kim. Kim, 
Is there anything impactful that we haven't shared today that you'd like to highlight to our audience? I don't know if you've heard of the, it's a well-known term in uh, the world of HR, the 70-20-10, and that 70% of your time, when you think of development, should be on the job, whether it's projects, whether it's uh, volunteering, whether it's initiatives, whether it's partnering, 20% is going to be through mentoring and feedback from your manager and developing that way. Only 10% should ever be formal development. If you think about where people are getting all their learning, it's on the job. It's not in a university or college setting. So it's so critical. Kim, I haven't heard of the 70-20-10 rule, but I'm not really the best at math. But what I am good at is asking questions. And now we've come to my favorite part of the podcast, where we get to learn just a bit more about what makes you tick. It's when we ask you what your favorite things are. Kim, are you ready for this? Okay. Okay, Kim, what is your favorite tool to help you get work done? Yeah, I thought about this a bit and I'm going, hmm, really it's my phone because if I look at all the apps I have on my phone, every app I can work with my team, whether I'm on a bus, a plane, a train, or sitting on a beach. A bus, a train, a plane, or sitting on a beach. I think that is one of my daughter's favorite Dr. Seuss books. <laughs> Probably is. Probably is. Now, Kim, what's your favorite resource to go to for industry information? So my question is, it depends on what information I'm trying to gather. And uh, I have a few sources that I use on a regular basis. So one of the ones related to the future of work for me is the World Economic Forum has a future of work labor study that comes out every year with great insights and country specific data to global data. And it looks at everything around the world and the implication on the jobs to the skill sets to the to how do we solve this problem of the future of work. So that from a work perspective, but in terms of overall trends in HR and business, I love the McKinsey's reports. I love uh, the Harvard Business Review. Those are probably a few that I look at on a probably daily basis. Okay, some great resources there. Kim, what was the first concert that you went to? I had to really think about that one. Kim, don't let the listeners know that I send you these questions ahead of time. It's all spontaneous conversation. I'm born and raised Calgarian, and, and I worked at the, the local stadium, McMahon Stadium, where the uh, Calgary Stampeders play, and I worked in the, can, uh, the canteens there. But I, literally, I was 12 and 13 years old, so my first concert was Eagles. And I loved it. It was a great concert. So it kind of dates me, but tells you the first concert that I went to. Well, that's a great first concert to go to. And you probably got to eat all the hot dogs and popcorn you could. Now, Kim, what was the best concert you've been to? The best concert I've been to would say probably Phil Collins. He's an outstanding oh. performer. And I think he puts on a great show. Well, Kim, you've put on a great show today. And let's wrap it up with this last question. Kim, what's your favorite piece of advice that you give to someone who's just starting out in their career? Um, two things. Be curious. Learn as much as you possibly can. Um, and build your network. And what I mean by that is build your brand. You need to know more than just your boss. When you work in an organization, you need to know the overall organization, other departments, Set up coffee meetings with people in other departments to get to know what do they do? How do they do it? Because you never know when that opportunity arises in another part of the business. It's, hey, I met that girl, Kim, when she first started. She might be a good person for that opportunity. So those are probably two of my pieces of advice I get, give most people starting out their career. 
Be curious. That's one of my favorite pieces of advice to give to. Kim, I've got tons of notes that I've jotted down here to take away with me. It's always inspiring when we get to have a guest that loves talking about how we keep our workforce engaged. And as HR professionals, I think our first job is the development of those around us. We fulfill our goals when other people meet their goals. As Michael Scott from The Office once said, and I should state that he might not be the best manager to always take advice from. Well, he said, a good manager doesn't fire people. He hires people and inspires people. People, Ryan, people will never go out of business. Kim, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun and uh, very interesting to hear your commentary around banana loaf and, and the work. So thank you for taking the time to have a conversation with me. I look forward to having more conversations with you. I'm sure we would have a hoot having further conversations. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank everyone for listening in. I know it's tough to find time to carve out for thought leadership, and I appreciate you, the listener, for making the time for us. Anything we can do to help ourselves get better at something is time well spent. On our next episode, we'll be talking with more HR experts about today's most important HR issues. I'm Jeff Livingston. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be kind. We'll see you soon on our next episode of ADP's Insights at Work.